These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Last week, we saw that the Sumerians valued strong warrior types who solve problems with violence, much the way we do today. But despite being Bronze Age peoples, they weren't simply axe-toting barbarians. They respected the skilled craftsman, the clever scribe, the wealthy merchant, the people who built the civilization in which they lived unique among the world in that time. And so, just as cherished, if not more so, was the god of wisdom, crafts, and creation, known to the Sumerians as Enki, but to later inheritors of the tradition, he was called the god Ea. We've seen a fair bit of Ea already, in pretty much any story that needed someone clever to trick our way out of a jam. His cunning prevented the death of humanity in the Great Flood, then saved the Sumerian Noah from divine retribution. He took a major role in the creation of humanity in the first place, and also created the mess, the magical cosmic powers that govern aspects of civilization. Of course, he also had those mess stolen from him with the combination of alcohol and seduction, but that too, as we'll see, fits his character. His city is Eridu, famous among Sumerians as being the oldest city in the world, a claim with some archaeological plausibility, depending on how you reckon such things. Oh, and he can also turn into a dragon. All seven of the great gods are capable of creation. This is what makes them the highest gods. But while the others will just make things whenever they have a need or when the fancy comes on them, Enki is the one most interested in creation itself. And he doesn't just build with his hands, though he does that. He creates the natural way, too, being, in addition to all his other titles, the Lord of Male Fertility, as well as the God of Water, which Sumerians saw as the source of all life, with reproductive fluid being considered just a special form of water. And that is how his first myth begins. Well, it begins with a little hymn of praise, but the plot part begins with him having intercourse with basically the entire world in one of about a dozen different creation myths that the Sumerians had, Ea and the World Order. This is another cataloging myth, much like the one in the last episode, except without the action scenes preceding it. He goes around and makes love to animals and inanimate objects, then congratulates himself on what an excellent job he's doing. His seed fills the sheep and cattle, and they become extremely fertile, and he does the same on the fields and makes grain grow from the ground. He then points his male parts at the Tigris River and fills it with seed. Honestly, the myth is much more explicit about it, but... While our standards of morality have improved in certain ways over the last 4,000 years, they have perhaps regressed in regards to prudery. In any case, he then non-sexually proceeds to go on a world tour, assigning the fates of various places to become great cities, and even being generous enough to assign animal herds to the nomads who don't get to live in cities. With the natural bounty of the world enumerated, and the great cities of Sumer listed and praised, next up Ea crafts the various occupations for humanity, the different ways that we humans can bring luxuries to the gods. 
farming, shepherding, constructing, weaving, and then he heaps all these new industrial products in a big pile in the Lord of God's temple in Nippur, and Enlil is understandably impressed. All the gods are taking turns praising Ea for his cleverness and skill, and Ea's right in there joining them with all the praising, and it's all one big hand-holding circle of self-gratification. But one goddess is not satisfied with the arrangements. And seriously now, we're well past three quarters through with this story, and there has been literally no conflict, just Ea being praised by himself and others about what a good job he's doing about putting the world together. Did the ancient Sumerians really find hymns of praise to be so riveting? I cannot understand it, since the praise goes well past the possible pedagogical purpose this story might be serving. But anyway, one goddess is unsatisfied and very conspicuously not joining in with the praise. And after all the celebrating, Ea goes back home when she knocks on his door. It's his daughter, the goddess Ishtar, who we are quite familiar with by now, wily and power-hungry, and she's weeping to her father and complains to him. She says, Father, it was your job to set the powers of the great gods, but I'm the woman, so it seems that I'm the only one to get left out here. And to be clear, Ishtar is not saying that she is the only female god, rather she's saying that as the goddess most closely representing women, she feels that her role as a woman has been neglected in the cosmic order. After all, she says, all the other girls got good stuff. And so we continue the listing, this time of female deities, but in complaint form instead of praise. Aruru, you see, gets to be goddess of birth and is given a beautiful gemstone bowl for carrying nasty afterbirth. Oh boy, that sounds great. Ninisina gets to be queen of heaven, married to An. Ninmug, whoever that is, gets lots of gold in her capacity as a metalworking god. Nisaba gets the power to demarcate boundaries, which sounds lame, but is pretty powerful when you think about it. Also, she gets writing. Nansha gets all the delicious fish and seabirds. But Ishtar wants to know, where are her functions? I have not disparaged you, goddess. I could hardly enhance what I've given you. You have a beautiful voice and clothing. That's a woman's power, to be beautiful and control men through seduction. And you have a battle aspect as well, calling out over the chaos of battle who will live and die. I gave you authority over the weaving industry. How much more could you want, you little troublemaker? Ishtar, with the power you already possess, you heap up human heads like piles of dust. You destroy what should not be destroyed and create what should not be created. And you're vain, never tiring of your admirers, but knowing nothing of hard work. But I've spent the whole story making really cool things and being praised for it. So I'm feeling pretty good right now. So I'll give you an assortment of obscure ritual responsibilities as well that would seem unimportant to a podcast listener a few thousand years from now, but 
will actually have the effect of elevating you up to a high status among the gods. And of course, if you have listened to the episode about Ishtar gaining power, then you know exactly what comes next. This is just the start of her long climb, much of it playing on her loving father's willingness to spoil his daughter. But that's part of the fun of Ishtar. It's hard not to have her steal the show in any myth she appears in. So what about Aya then? Honestly, I like him. His character, he seems like he's pretty chill. He's usually the smartest guy in the room, but he never seems to get arrogant about it. He just wants to build and relax. He likes a good drink and he hangs out with the other gods. And he generally seems like the happiest, most positive of the lot. My favorite example of this, showing his clever benevolence, is his contest with Ninhursag. But some context here first. You see, the ancient Sumerians never asked questions about the meaning of life. This wasn't because they were incurious, but it was because they knew the answer. It was very clear-cut for them. It gets discussed in the flood myth, but it's summarized here as well for our benefit. In the beginning, the gods were building the world, but building the world turns out to be a lot of work, and the lesser gods were forced to toil in the mud all day and grew upset about it. But of course, the gods have a hierarchy just like human society. And it wasn't all the gods that are breaking their backs, hauling stones back and forth, just the lesser ones, the Igigi. Ea is a senior high god, so his role is much more administrative. One day, Ea is taking an afternoon nap after a big lunch, and the lesser gods, the Igigi, become upset. Here they are, toiling in the heat, while Big Boss Man over there gets to take a nap. And so they go on strike until someone can find a way to lessen their burden. So Ea creates a slave labor force out of clay. The whole purpose behind their creation, the reason for their existence, is to toil and do all the heavy labor that the gods don't want to do. The meaning of life for a Sumerian is to produce things that you can offer to the temple for the benefit of the gods. This is baked deep into their culture and attitudes. And so our story begins with Ea in the process of creating those first humans. He's been joined by the goddess Ninhursag, who is his wife as well as the Lady of the Mountains and mother of Ninurta from the last episode. Note that Ninurta is the son of Ninhursag and Enlil, Lord of Gods, though Ninhursag herself is the wife of Ea. There's quite a lot of this sort of thing going around, and it'll only get worse in our next story. And actually, to be really precise, she has a different name at this point because it isn't until her son battles the Asag demon, which featured in last episode, that she becomes the Lady of the Mountains. So for now, she's simply Ninma the Goddess, but we're going to keep calling her Ninhursag to minimize the confusion. And on the subject of Ninhursag's many names, she's also called Mama, which literally means mother. And I wouldn't expect that non-experts like you or I would be able to recognize any Sumerian words, but apparently every single part of language has changed over the last 4,000 years, except for baby's first word, Mama. 
Anyway, Ea has made the first few humans, and he's celebrating with the other gods with a feast. He and his wife Ninhursag are drinking beer together, having a pleasant time, when Ninhursag starts to get a little full of herself, boasting that she can decide the fate of man, either good or bad, however she feels like. Well, Mr. Ea takes that as a challenge and says, any man that you can fashion, no matter how horrible and misshapen, I can counterbalance that bad with a good fate. And so the contest begins. Ninhursag creates a man with weak, unbending arms. Ea considers for a moment and then finds him a job doing light work as a palace servant. Next, she makes a blind man, and Ea gifts him with musical talent. She makes a man with broken feet, so Ea makes him a silversmith so that he can work at a bench all day without needing to stand. She made a man who could not hold his urine, so Ea invented a medical exorcism to cure his disease. She made a sterile man and woman, and so Ea appointed them as palace eunuch and palace nursemaid. And one version of one tablet has some jokester add in a line stating that Ninhursag created an idiot, and so Ea made him an advisor to the king. But finally, Ninhursag could not think of any more deformities and grabbed the rest of her clay and threw it on the ground, pouting. Ea, in the first and perhaps only act of charity I remember seeing in any of these stories, gloats that no matter how damaged a person is, there's always a way for them to be a productive member of society and earn their daily bread. But then Ea turned the game around and said it was his turn, and he created a man named Umul, the most wretched creature you could imagine. His limbs were weak, his neck was too thin to hold up his head, he could barely breathe, his heart beat weakly, he could not lift bread to his mouth, he was blind and brain damaged as well. Nina Hersag looked over this wretch and eventually said that poor Omel is neither alive nor dead and simply had no way of supporting himself. And so Ea gloated for a while, and Ninhursag tried again, but the exchange they have here is sadly lost. Apparently, she loses a fair bit, maybe as the wages of a failed gamble, or possibly trying to bring poor, miserable Umul to self-sufficiency. Finally, she declares that this man is completely useless, and that she's been bested wholly by Ea. Ea, of course, is quite pleased with himself and announces the solution to his riddle. Even wretched Umul can pray to the gods. Now we have one more creation story for you today, though be certain that Ea shows up in many more creation tales, including the famous Enuma Elish, considered the greatest of creation stories. This one is about the land of Dilmun, the Sumerian paradise land, a little bit Xanadu and a little bit Garden of Eden. Dilmun is so pure that even the lions and wolves do not kill other animals, and the birds and pigs don't even eat the grain or seeds. There are no headaches or eye diseases, no one's hurt by age or death. Ea was very fond of Dilmun. It had been the place he had gotten married to his wife Ninhursag, so naturally he considered it a great gift when he handed the land over to his favorite daughter Ninsakilla. 
Now, Ninsakilla took one look at this veritable paradise and was unimpressed. Sure, there were no bad things, but there were no good things either. Dillman was not on the Tigris or Euphrates River, so how is it to have all the luxuries of a good life delivered to it? Interesting note here, Dillman was actually a real place, not a garden nation devoid of suffering, but we have numerous receipts from ships bringing in goods from Dillman. As best we can figure, this was the Sumerian name for some place along the Indian coast, the easternmost extreme of a Bronze Age trading network that crossed Mesopotamia and reached into Egypt. But apparently, mythologically speaking, it is because Ea wanted to please his daughter that this network existed at all. He built something like a river quay, but for the Indian Ocean instead of for a mere river and ordered cities from all lands to regularly bring trade goods to Dilmun so that his daughter could be made happy. And with all the divine favor of a happy father and daughter watching over it, a sudden freshwater spring came up and cleaned out all the salt water along the coasts so that now everyone could have good water to drink. How they avoided sickness with only brackish water in the town is unclear, but that's just the magic of the land. And now the land of Dilmun is the great trading hub of the Far East. There is a whole mess of names here now. This next part is in fact just a whole mess in generally, and includes goddesses who take different names at different times. But here is where the story of genial old Ea goes a bit off the rails. See, now that the land of Dilmun is prosperous, Ea is bored. And when Ea gets bored, he gets horny. And so, one day he's in the marshes in the muddy reed bed. Did Western India have marshy reed beds like modern Kuwait? I don't know. And honestly, neither did the Sumerians, for whom Dilmun was just the exotic, mysterious eastern location where trade goods came by ship from. So they imagine it to be rather like Mesopotamia. Why not? So A is out in this muddy field when he gets bored and decides to plunge his phallus into the mud, quite literally plowing the field. Why not? His wife, Ninhursag, is also taking a walk in the reed marsh and comes across her husband. Now, at first she pretends not to notice, but he calls out to her. No, I have zero interest in doing that in the marsh. Come back to the palace, clean up, then maybe we can talk about it. But Ea was insistent, and finally talked his wife into laying down in the mud, pulling his phallus out of the mud and into his very tolerant lover. Now, being not just a god, but a creation god who is particularly in charge of male seed, she naturally becomes pregnant from this. And because he is so fertile, the nine months pregnancy only takes nine days, and out pops Ninising. Now, she grows up quickly and is fully a person when she's walking around Dillman and comes across a pleasant path into the reed marshes. Aya can see this particular path from wherever it is that he's sitting, and he remarks to his minister that, 
a mighty fine woman is passing through the marsh all alone. His minister nods and agrees that his young daughter is mighty fine. And so Ea goes down and forces himself on his daughter in the reed marsh. She, in turn, becomes pregnant, and this pregnancy also takes only nine days before his very young daughter gives birth to his daughter-slash-granddaughter, Ninkura. This pattern then repeats for Ninkura only a few weeks later, and she gives birth to Ninima. Ea grows lustful for his great-granddaughter and creates the fifth generation where the family tree is a family telephone pole, the goddess Utu. Now, Utu is a weaving goddess and also a spider. And, according to the experts, she is the same person as Ninsikilla, just with a different name. Yes, the same Ninsikilla, who is the whole reason we're in Dilmun in the first place. Narrative flow was still being invented, so don't think about it too hard. Anyway, when Utu grows up a few weeks after she is born, her great-great-grandmother takes her aside and decides it's time to stop this madness. She says, Utu, you must heed my advice. Do not go into the marsh. Never, ever go into the marsh. Not for any reason. Your father-slash-great-great-grandfather, and in fact everything in between, will see you if you go there, and he will surely rape you and give me another generation of incest to keep track of. And so, unlike nearly everyone else in Sumerian literature, she obeys her instructions and never goes into the marsh. Having been forewarned, she has the sense to simply avoid the area where she will certainly be raped. Good job, Utu. Well, Ea has been watching the marsh, waiting for round six, seven? We're not really sure. But he never sees any attractive young goddesses with a strong familiar resemblance to himself passing by and starts to suspect that someone has let the word get out about his scheme. God of cleverness he may be, but he's overestimating his cleverness a bit here, yeah? Still, something must be done or he will be back to plowing the mud. And so he disguises himself as a gardener and goes into town to purchase fruits and vegetables. Why he can't just make fruits and vegetables? I don't know. But anyway, he selects all the best produce and takes it down in a basket to Utu's house. Now, the gods are very used to mortals bringing them goodies. That is, after all, the whole point of having mortals in the world anyway. But pretty quickly, Ea starts to get handsy, gently popping grapes into her mouth one by one. And sure enough, in short order, she too has been seduced. Now, the story says seduced, but it also says that afterwards she was crying in bed in a great deal of pain. So how much caressing and how much forcing was involved is, at best, ambiguous, though I certainly wouldn't bet in Utu's favor here. In any case, Ea has already wandered off, satisfied to wait for the next generation to pop out, while his great-great-granddaughter is crying her eyes out, pleading for someone, please, to help her. 
Her great-great-grandmother, Ninhursag, hears her plea and comes down to scoop out the seed to at least keep her from getting pregnant, then scatters the unwanted seed in the dirt. It scatters into eight drops, and where they fell sprang up a whole new plant. Ea was looking out over the marsh some time later when he noticed that there were eight new plants he'd never seen before. He called his minister over and asked if he knew what those plants were. The minister didn't know either, so they made up names and destinies for each plant, and Ea ate the ball. Ninhursag came upon him eating these plants and was furious, cursing him. Not only was he serially raping his daughters, now he was eating his own children, these plants that had grown from him. She swore that she would never again look on him with life-giving eye, a curse so powerful that it knocked the high god on his butt into the dust. Ea fell ill, partly from the curse and partly from eating a bunch of random plants. Seriously, this story is also considered by some academics to be a cautionary tale about the dangers of eating unfamiliar plants. Anyway, Ea is deathly ill and everyone is mad at him, so he's suffering all alone. Oh no, poor little rapist. Finally, a fox comes by and offers to help. Oh good, said Ea. I need a... Let me stop you right there, said the fox. I would like to help you, but I would also like some reward for the help that I am about to offer. And so Ea promised that if the fox would send a message to his wife Ninhursag, then he really needed her to come visit. Then he would plant two birch trees in the fox's honor in Ea's ancient city of Eridu and would increase his fame in some unspecified manner. The fox does as asked, and it apparently takes some convincing, though the details are lost to a break in the text. In any case, Ninhursag is suitably impressed somehow by the urgency of Ea's illness and sits on the bed next to him. What's hurting, she says. Everything, he answers miserably. And so she gets naked, because she knew her husband, and like Marvin Gaye, what he really needed was some sexual healing. She took his seed, and she took his pain from every part that was hurting, his head, hair, nose, mouth, throat, arm, rib, and sides, and used that to give birth to eight more babies, transforming Ea's pain and sickness into children. There's a metaphor there, but I'm not sure where. And thus ends the story of Ea and Ninhursag, perhaps one of the least direct or linear of narratives I have come across. From the inheritance of Dilmun to the incestuous serial rape to the illness of Ea, each event is only tenuously connected as the story shifts in an almost dreamlike manner. Were the poets using dreams as a conscious inspiration, or is it simply a primitivism that would be worked out in subsequent generations? Honestly, I couldn't tell you. But however the story is framed, what a fascinating character, and what a fascinating moral world the Sumerians lived in. 
Obviously, in the Bronze Age, A would not be considered a man of radical contradictions for managing to find charity for the disabled in one story, then raping six generations of his own daughters in another. Rather, he would be considered extra-virtuous, since his cleverness is compounded by his virile fertility. But from a modern perspective, I'm having trouble thinking of any myth in any ancient society that is quite as perverse and vile as Aya's swampy rape trap. But this is the same man who gives us about the only charity to mortals in need that I have seen from any of the gods. The Sumerians, you see, were very big on the inherent dignity of working and being able to sustain yourself, at least for adult men. This manifested in some admirable ways, for instance, the fact that pretty much no occupation was looked down upon except for slaves. Servants, farmers, day laborers, merchants, craftsmen, soldiers, and so on are all allowed a certain amount of dignity and only ever disparaged when they're inept or lazy. Kings and priests get most of the praise, of course. They're the ones writing this praise, after all. But still, the laboring classes are considered worthwhile. And so when Ea offers some of the disabled jobs as palace servants, this is not a put-down, but a way for them to gain dignity and financial independence. Oh, but you know who doesn't seem to get any dignity in any of these stories? Women. Apparently, they aren't even part of the reproductive process. The Sumerians seemed to have believed that the male had the entire seed and the woman was just a container for it to grow in. I'm not even completely certain that the Sumerians saw rape as immoral in itself. It is mentioned in a few places as a crime to rape a virgin or a woman married to someone else, but in each case, the crime is referenced as being committed against the man who owns that woman. But here, Ea would have been considered the owner of his wife and many generations of daughters. And more to the point, our modern idea of pinning an intrinsic moral good or evil to an act seems to have been alien to the Sumerian way of thinking. Ea gave the disabled a means of supporting themselves in order to win a contest. Then he raped his daughters, and it was fine because he got away with it. Until his wife got mad, then it wasn't good anymore. But in the end, they made up, so it was all okay. Anyway, that pretty much rounds out our look at the foundational tales of the highest Sumerian gods. Next week, we're going to be descending back into the mortal realm, to look at the history and stories of the city of Lagash, one of the great powers of the early dynastic period. And after a few episodes of that, it's going to lead us nicely into the exciting and much more detailed Akkadian period. There will be lots more stories that have survived when we can push the timeline just a few centuries closer to the present, mostly because writing is becoming that much more prevalent in later centuries. And so, Join me next time as we found the first dynasty of Lagash. Thank you for listening.